welcome to another Open Pantry podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Our next guest is the director of Scoffer Consulting, Pete Dillon, who is a marketing, PR, brand, and communication Swiss Army knife. He's a journalist, chef, strategist, and business manager, having worked for more than 30 years across some of the world's most noted lifestyle, leisure, not-for-profit, and professional services brands. We're here to talk about all things PR and marketing and make sure your business is set up for success. Welcome, Pete Dillon. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Sean DeVries. And you? I, I am fantastic. And I'm always good when someone full names me at the start of a podcast. So I appreciate that. Well, um, <laughs> yeah, I, you go full name, I'll go full name with you. <laughs> fantastic. Um, now, it's fantastic to have, have you on the show. Um, and we had a we had a... We had a really great chat last week. Um, I was really impressed by, you know, the conversation we had. We talked about the industry and, and obviously how long you've you've been in it and and just how much you love it. Um, so, do you want to just share with the listeners, you know, how you started out in your career and sort of got to the point where you're at now? Sure. Um, it was 37 years ago. I'm sad to admit. Uh, a little wide. Yeah. yeah. You look fantastic. You must have started when you were Flattery will get you everywhere, my friend. <laughs> Flattery will get you everywhere. Um, I, I started as a chef. I was a wide-eyed kid in the country who wanted to be um, one of the greatest chefs in the world because I'd lost my patience with school and my idea of being a barrister went out the window. So right. I decided that a chef was the way I was going to go. I actually started my training in a, a country hospital. Oh, right. um, there's a lot to be said for, for starting training local. Um, I ended up finishing in, in Ballarat and Melbourne because I, the bright lights of the big smoke were, were very enticing for a young fellow from the country who was very different to everybody else in the town. I have to yeah. kind of confess the town of 3,000 people was not prepared for, um, for somebody of my ilk. So um, getting out and kind of heading into the, the big wide world. Um, I worked in Melbourne for a few years and kind of went, mm, this just a gig is not for me. Um, it's, small rooms and it's hot and there's big egos and um, as much as I love chefs and I, some of my greatest friends are chefs, I'm just kind of, it, it wasn't for me. So I moved and transitioned very quickly into front of house, which was a better environment. Mm-hmm. And I've always thought front of house and, and uh, the industry in itself always allowed for a bit of, for want of a better term, performance. Mm-hmm. Um, it allows you to interact with people, it allows you to, um, you know, to, to show skills. And, um, you know, it's, it's a very, I think it's a fine line between dance and theatre and skill. Mm-hmm. So um, I did that for a couple of years and, and my journey took me firstly to Port Douglas to the Sheraton Mirage, which at the time was probably the best hotel in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just at the end of the Christopher Scase era. Oh, right. Um, and that, yeah, that kind of showed me that hotels are fun. Yes. And as a result, I took off to Japan, uh, the Caribbean. Um, I, I kind of worked halfway around the world, um, gaining more skills and kind of flooding into roles that I was eminently underqualified for. Mm. Um, so I was a food and beverage director at 24. Wow. Um, which, you know, I wasn't, I don't think I was emotionally capable as much as, professionally capable, but yes. I managed to make my way through it. So yep. clearly not as bad as I thought. Mm. Um, and in my, in my late twenties, um, I'd come back from a stint overseas and decided I would do a, a, a grad dip in marketing because I'd started to see 
um, the value of marketing within the industry. I've started to work in some marketing capacities. And this was in, this is well before I, I, we really understood what marketing was. Mm. Um, and I say we as an industry, I think we're very good at talking about ourselves um, and what we do, but at the same time, we're not good at it. Mm. So I did a great deal in marketing um, and kind of went off again and, and came back to um, Melbourne the first time. And my mother was ill and I wanted to do something that was going to allow me to be part of her care. Okay. So I landed at the ABC and whilst I was there, I ended up doing a, um, a Bachelor of Communications and my majors were in um, marketing, uh, sorry, journalism and public relations. Mm-hmm. And I worked at the ABC for six years and I produced, I was lucky enough to produce the, the, the best PR here in town, which was the conversation with John Fain. Yes. Um, a great grounding. And I kind of worked across the ABC. And at the same time, I set up a program on Joy, which is um, um, Joy 94.9 in Melbourne, mm-hmm. um, which ran for about eight and a half years. Mm-hmm. Every Saturday, a show about food and wine. So I just kind of kept evolving my um, my skill set, I suppose, and, and studying more and doing courses on digital marketing and mm-hmm. uh, doing courses on all sorts of things. So um, it kind of brought me to this space. I left the ABC 10 years ago. Yes. And I started a PR agency with a friend, mm-hmm. um, which was a foolish idea, but, you know, we make these mistakes in business. Um, and then kind of went on my own. And as the, over the last 10 years, I've gone from focusing mostly on PR as, as one kind of arm of marketing PR and, and a bit of social and digital to now spending my time dealing with strategy. Because I think without a strategy, the tactics, the tactical pieces don't work. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And, and that probably, you know, leads me into my next question. I know when we, when we spoke offline last week, we talked a lot about strategy and, um, you know, how marketing was playing out in this sort of, you know, the last couple of years and um, influencer marketing, those kind of things. Um, but how do you think marketing is sort of misunderstood by the hospitality industry? Because there is marketing is such a broad term for what, you know, an industry like hospitality, which is so sexy, got great fit outs, got great food, got great energy, all those kind of things. People can be seduced by thinking what marketing actually is. So what do you think, how is marketing misunderstood by our industry, do you think? Um, in a number of ways, and it's not the industry's fault. Marketing is generally misunderstood. Um, it's made up of kind of three or four different pieces. Um, and I look at marketing and, and these pieces can't operate on their own. So one of them, of course, is, is public relations. And we all want to see our venues or our, um, our clients in broadsheets or, or the urban list or uh, good food in the age or, or those kinds of things. That's that's one part of marketing. And a lot of those areas now becoming pay for play. So unless you're willing to invest some money in ads, we're not going to run editorial. Yes. Um, so that's kind of the, 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 the PR part of it. The second part is there's a lot of people investing a lot of time in people who are eminently unqualified to deliver social media. Yes. Um, and we think that social media is putting up posts about ourselves and having great photos that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the part that is missing in that is the social part. Yes. And that's kind of like you or myself going to a party and waltzing in and saying, hi, I've been to France. I had a really good time. Here's my photo. See you later. 
Yes. We're not, we're, not, we're not spending enough time on saying, you know, hi, I've been to France. Have you been? What did you think? Where did you yeah. eat? Yes. Especially very much. It's, it's, it's a conversation. And without that conversation, we're just kind of we're shouting and boasting. And so I have a, a particular client at the moment who kind of said to me, I need you to coach me on this thing because I've been paying an agency in Sydney to throw a few posts up a week and talk about us. And I said, well, that's fine, but it's not... Um, that's only one half of a conversation. And the more you do that, the more people are going to um, kind of draw away from you because you're just shouting at them about yourself. Yes. There's a, I, said, I think the third function is, um, is advertising. And obviously this is a paid uh, function of marketing where mm. you buy some space, but you place an ad and you may get some editorial that goes along with that or some advertorial. And that can be radio, that can be, you know, a sponsorship of a podcast. Um, yeah. It can be, um, you know, in, in uh, an industry publication. Mm-hmm. And then there is the fourth part. And the fourth part, I think, is the most um, misused, misused and misunderstood part of what we do is, is influencer um, engagement. And there's, I think there's a lot of time and money spent on influencers and it's spent badly. Yes. Um, clearly, the, the, the budget for marketing in, um, in a business is always small mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because we don't quite understand it. So I'll, I'll go to the second part of the answer, <laughs> which I apologize is terribly long. No, but um, there, there are two kinds of marketing. Mm. There is strategic marketing, which is how you develop a, a, a roadmap or a, a forward-thinking plan on what your marketing is going to achieve. Yes. I bring that whole strategy down to two very simple questions, mm-hmm. which is so what and who cares? Yeah. So what is, what, what's, what's your widget? What's, mm. what's your service? What's your good? What's your, what's your unique selling prospect that you have in your business? Yes. It is different to everybody else in the industry. Mm-hmm. And if you can't answer that, then we have a problem. Yeah. The second part is the, the, the who cares. And of course, that's your audience. Who are they? How much do you know about your customer? Yes. Um, why do they buy from you? Why do they sit in your restaurant or your cafe or your coffee shop or your uh, catering venue or why are they buying your products compared mm-hmm. to somebody else's? Mm-hmm. Um, and once you know the answers to those questions, that, that's how you start to form a strategy on your capability. So what is your function and making sure that you're offering as much as you can. Yes. And then finding that audience, that who cares part is finding more of them mm. so that, your venue is busy or your cafe is busy or you're selling more of your product. Mm. And I think that's the, that's the very strategic part of marketing, which is always, always um, overlooked. Yes. We don't have those conversations. We go straight into uh, an agency comes in and we'll do your social and digital and we'll have lots of people following and liking and tagging your posts. And um, at the same time, we'll try and get you into broadsheet or, or urban list or one of those things. So we'll get some editorial for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but we think you need a rebrand um, and you, um, you're you also going to need um, a lot of work done on your website. Uh, we're going to need to get a photographer in and it's going to cost you three or $4,000 for some really cool shots. Yes. Um, so that's kind of the tactical part. Oh, and you need uh, some kind of widget, some kind of giveaway, some kind of thing mm-hmm. um, that, of course, people will take away to remember you by. Mm-hmm. All of those things are useless without the strategy and how do those ta- those tactics then support the strategy the very last thing for me is to go into a business and say you need a rebrand yes 
And if rebrand is the last avenue we've got to try and keep a business alive, that business is already in some serious trouble. Yeah. yeah. And I've seen over the last decade or more businesses rebrand every year. Every year? Mm-hmm. Every right. year. Okay. And when you're changing the brand, when you're changing the very function of, of an identity of what you do, mm. you're losing a portion of your customers. Yes. Because they're not going to they're not, not going to visit you if all of a sudden you start looking different all of the time. Because one thing our customers love is loyal customers and engaged customers love that feeling of walking in the door. They'll probably get their usual table on occasion. They'll be greeted by name. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll have an experience. And I think one of the things that I've witnessed a lot through this, this COVID process um, and business pivoting and starting to rethink is some of the, the decisions businesses are making around the value of transactions and what they mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I always will advise that um, yes, social and digital can work for you, but what is your strategic roadmap, first of all? Mm-hmm. What do you want to achieve from a social and digital presence. If you want high numbers, and that's what I call vanity metrics, yep. that's great. We can we can get you vanity metrics. We can have people follow you, but what's the value of the engagement? Yes. What's the value of having that follower? So, you know, great, have 10,000 followers, but how many of them are engaged with your business? Yes, yeah, how many actually? You're probably better to have 2,500 followers mm. and know that you've got really strong engagement so that when you're posting, something on, a, on an Instagram or a Facebook or a Twitter or any of those things mm. that your audience is actually reacting and is engaged and they're, you know, they're liking, they're sharing, they're doing all those kinds of things. They're responding to you because they're engaged with your brand. Yeah. If you've got 10,000 followers, you're probably going to get, you're lucky to get 5% engagement. And I've, I've seen this recently with them, um, with another of my clients, they have 450 followers. These are a, uh, a food production organization and they're producing a particular kind of food yep. and they've got 450 customers. We've done a little bit of work on their posts mm-hmm. and we're seeing 150% engagement. Wow. So there'll be a post at, um, and, and we'll boost a post. We won't spend a lot of money, yes. but there'll be a small boost on the post and we'll actually see with only 450 followers, mm-hmm. we'll see six or 700 likes or taps on the post jesus that's because we've got an audience that's engaged yeah and the the targeting within that engagement Mm -hmm. um is what's growing our audience and we we follow this brand follows far more people than follow them but i don't see that as a bad thing either it's um that ultimately will balance itself out over time and if i look at my own um my own social media going back when i first started an Instagram account, I was following loads more people than followed me. But over time, I now have more followers than, than mm-hmm. I followed. Not a lot, but a few. Mm-hmm. It was the same with Twitter. I remember in 2007 saying to somebody, Twitter's not going to work. We can't microblog in 140 characters. That's nonsense. That thing will fail. Um, <laughs> I have eaten a lot of humble pie over that Twitter comment. <laughs> Pete, is it, has it been harder in the last decade, as you spoke about before, for food brands, hospitality brands to really know what their value proposition is, know what their point of difference is. You know, yeah, it is because everybody's trying to, trying to be the same. Mm. Mm. Um, 
and I don't say everybody's trying to be the same. Every chef or, or business owner who builds a business is going in and, and has in their head a very unique, a very unique selling composition, a US Haiti. Yeah. But then um, because of, of trends and the dominance of, of trends and fads, mm. they start to evolve a business to be a bit more like that one down the road or a bit more like that one that's got a big following or a bit more like that one that's been talked about um, around town. Yes. Making those decisions is, is, is crazy. And if I look to Melbourne, um, I look at places like um, Grossi mm-hmm. is, is a great example. Yep. Doesn't change. Um, you know, they've added on and they've done extra bits outside of, but the, the, the great function of Grossi is you can go and have an incredible place of authentic pasta. Yes. Um, I remember chatting quite a bit to Marco Pierre White uh, over the course of a, a couple of years that he was out here doing MasterChef. Mm. And I used to ask him the same question. Where do you go and eat when you're in Melbourne and wine? He said, I love going to Distazio for mm-hmm. a glass of wine and something simple to eat at the bar. Mm. And Distazio have been doing Distazio for however long Distazio have been doing it. Um, Bakash um, has been doing Bakash for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I look at, um, I'm trying to think what it's called. There's a French restaurant. They've been around since the 80s. Their original chef only left a few years ago because he retired. Mm. And his sous chef, who's been with him since the restaurant opened in the 80s, is is now the chef. Mm -hmm. Some of the floor staff have been in that place for um, as long as that restaurant's been open since since the 80s. So I kind of, I look at those guys that they're, and I think Matteo Pignatelli does this also incredibly well at Matteo's. Yes. Unashamedly, this is what the offer is. This is what the service is. You're going to get impeccable wine. You're going to get fantastic service. You're going to get a menu designed around these things. And that is what we do. Yes. And that's where restaurants are successful. Yeah. Um, and that's why Matteo's has been open for so long and why Bacash has been open for so long and why Distazio has been open for so long because they are consistent. Yes. Um, they, they, they get their so what. They know exactly what the USP is. So um, I think over the last decade, we've also been very, very much hoodwinked by the cult of the influencer. Yes. And we can talk about, <laughs> we can talk about that infin, ad infinitum. Yes. Um, look, the, the influencer and, and the, the rise and rise and rise of the food blog Mm. Um, essentially, if you had a good internet connection, a camera, and an ability to craft a few words, you could have a food blog. Yes. Yep. I was referred to as a blogger um, a number of times uh, in, in recent years. Um, I'm not a blogger. Mm-hmm. I'm somebody who comes from a, um, a background as a chef, mm-hmm. as a venue operator. I've owned and run businesses at the base end of the scale. Yep. I've, I've run businesses at the top end of the scale. Uh, at, in five-star hotels. So um, I'm coming from a place of knowledge and I think that's a lot of where the difference lies. Some of my, some of my dearest friends are, um, are food influencers and they're food influencers for a reason. Yes. And I, I, I will also say that I use influencers in my business. What I use though now are micro-influencers mm-hmm. and it goes back to that engagement I was talking about before. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't, engage with influencers who are all about vanity metrics. If you've got a hundred thousand followers, it's very unlikely um, that my product or my brand or my client's product or brand is 
going to see success from your influence. Mm-hmm. One of the other um, advisory pieces that I use with venues is um, don't host an influencer event. Yes. Uh, so why do you think? Because, well, everyone's going to turn up and then on the same night and they're going to be served the same food yes. and the same beverages. And all of a sudden, for that night, for a few hours, there's going to be an explosion of um, imagery and content on whichever channel they're using. Yes. Until they go to an event tomorrow or until they have another product tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's such a finite window of influence. Yes. So my advice is, is always um, think about what that influencer event was going to cost you. Yes. So what's it cost you to put 10 or 15 people or 20 people around the table mm-hmm. with X amount of dollars spent on food and wine and, and entertainment and what have you. Mm. And then break that down and have 10 or 12 influencers come in over a course of three months. Mm-hmm. So maybe you have one a week over 12 weeks yes. and you give them a budget and you say, you know, come in, we've got a, a budget of X amount of dollars. You can order what you like that fits into that budget. Um, and the imagery and the, uh, the content is going to be very different because what you're going to go in and order is very different to what I'm going to go in and order. Yes. Um, and the experience that I have is going to be very different to yours because we have different expectations. So, um, and that gives you this kind of a, a, a trickle feed over three months rather than a blast for a night. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it's, it's interesting, this, this influencer discussion, because I think micro influence is far more valuable. I'd rather have somebody that's got 3,000 really engaged followers where their engagement is 75%. Yep. Um, that those people are local, that those people are going to be the ones that will say, oh, Mary went here. I'm going to go and check out that because it looks like it's great. Mary's had a good time. Yep. Mary's got some great imagery. Um, Mary's talking about this in, in Mary's language. And I, I engage with Mary because we speak a similar language. Yep. So that's why I'm going to go and have that. I'm going to have that experience. And I think that's kind of where, um, again, COVID has been an incredible leveler and one of the questions you asked me last week is mm. who's going to be hurt the most through this yes. pandemic and, and how do we emerge mm. and how does the industry emerge? Doors are open, limited spaces. Yep. Um, apart from me trying to single-handedly revive Victoria's economy, <laughs> um, you know, there's going to be some value for, for those in South Australia who are now going through this process. Yes. Um, when Western Australia opens up, Mm-hmm. regional Australia, my goodness, I'm, I'm originally from the country and regional Australia is very close to my heart. Um, yes. And I don't say that with any kind of flippancy. It really is. Um, mm-hmm. I love supporting regional, particularly regional Victoria because it's my home. Yes. So um, I think one of the, the great things I'm looking forward to is, is seeing how we recover collectively as an industry mm-hmm. and those who stand out, um, at the end of the process. And there will be those that will fall and there'll be those that thrive. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think Pete, just, I want to go back to your radio days for a second. Like you're a very, very good storyteller and it's, and it's very obvious that you will be, um, you're obviously excellent at PR and marketing. Like, do you think the fact that you had a time in radio in which you were developing conversations and you talked about being the producer with John Fain's conversation hour, which um, when I moved to Melbourne five years ago, five and a half years ago, like 
that show was actually really important for me to understand what Melbourne was about and, and to really feel like Melbourne was a new home. And, and that's the power of like communication and connection. Like, do you, do you think that time in radio that you had allowed you the ability to actually learn how to communicate two way rather than just blast? Um, absolutely. Um, there's probably a couple of things. The first part is I'm one of 10 children and I'm the second youngest. Yes. Um, growing up in a house of um, a household like my own, mm. um, there was a need to be heard, mm. but that need to be heard would never, ever come from shouting. Yes. It would become from, you know, we, we had to listen, we had to learn to listen and then mm. be involved in conversations within the house where you have an allocated space or time to do that because, yeah. you know, a big family's rowdy. I love radio as a medium. I always have. And I had done radio kind of before I got to the ABC. But um, I think for me, um, this conversation is very personal. Uh, And when I listen to the radio, I I love, um, when I listen to the radio a lot because I'm a bit of a a radio junkie, it's it's my medium. Um, I hear in the voice, and this is where fame was outstanding. And this is what I try to emulate um, in some way. John was very good at having a one-on-one conversation with a single listener in their car, in their kitchen, um, in their bed, wherever it was. Um, It always felt like John was talking just to you. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the the key to a a good broadcaster. So I learned that from him very quickly, Mm -hmm. but it's pointless me doing a radio show where I'm not getting the very best story out of my guests. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's something I had to learn, um, and I learned very quickly. Yes. Um, conversely, uh, sometimes your guests and the choices you make in guests uh, mean that you end up in a very difficult situation where your guest is not a talker. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I would love to highlight one example, and I'm hoping that I don't give this guest away, but this guest um, had a restaurant in Melbourne for 30 years. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, when I interviewed them, mm-hmm. um, they had released an initial cookbook many years before, mm-hmm. um, and so had a second, um, a second iteration of the same cookbook that talked about the cuisine, the family, yep. the venue, and so forth. Sure. Um, the guests came in, and uh, the publicist came with them. Mm-hmm. Um, guest asked, could the publicist sit in the studio, which I normally wouldn't do, but I could see they were a little bit uncomfortable with sure. the idea. So yep. publicist came in. I remember asking three or four questions and getting one or two word answers. <laughs> and then, so as I tried to extrapolate more out of the guest, um, they would turn to the publicist to answer the questions because I was looking to the publicist behind them, completely off mic. Um, looking to the publicist for reassurance that the answer was kind of right. So um, I, I, I felt terribly bad for, for that guest. Yes. But I was really annoyed at the publicist because there were other ways we could have done that interview. Yes. Um, had the publicist given me more information. Yes. Had the publicist advised me that the, the guest was a little shy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, we could have got another member of the guest's family in mm. to augment the discussion mm. um, and talk about growing up in a, in a restaurant through 
their eyes rather than the eyes of just the parents um, to talk about the cuisine. So um, thankfully I had a lot of people on speed dial by then that I could just very quickly send a text message to while I was playing a song and saying, I need your help. Um, Are you available to talk about what wines might go with this particular cuisine or how Mm -hmm. we can augment this discussion? Because I've had this guest in for seven minutes and there is nothing more that I can pull from them. Right. And it was supposed to be, what, a 30-minute discussion or something? Uh, yeah, 30 to... <laughs> There's only certain recipes you can kind of pull out and ask to, <laughs> to talk about this and, and the tradition of this particular dish in a, in a familial sense. So it was really quite... Um, it was an unnerving day. And I, a couple of my friends who um, now live in regional Victoria, I know were listening to the show, and I got a couple of texts saying are you okay? That really sounds like you're pulling teeth in there. And, and it, it kind of, it, it hurts listening to it because it's not your usual style. Sure. Um, and, you know, I think, I think the other thing is when you're talking about something that you, you know and you love and you're implicitly passionate about, and mm. whether, it was, whether it was with Fane and, and Melbourne, and I did a lot of work with uh, arts and culture and theatre and food and so forth, um, that's that's where my heart kind of lies in one sense. And then when I was doing my own program on radio, food is something that I've been around since I was you know since I was a kid. Yes. Um, I made it my career, and it's always been, regardless of what I've done and where I've gone and how I've tried to get out of it, I always am drawn back to food, wine, travel, lifestyle mm. because it's it's I think where my heart really really does lie. So for the experience of um, of radio, it's it's actually quite interesting. A course I did with the ABC mm-hmm. was with a woman from the United States called Bella Geller, mm-hmm. and she's kind of the the joy and the goddess of, of of radio. And it was something that somebody had picked up and and said to me again, when you're really comfortable and when you're happy and when you're talking about something that you're that you just love, yeah. the timbre of your voice. Ch- interview or your discussion far more compelling yes because because of the timber of the voice um, yes. because it does change so I, I always took that on board as well so i'd always try to make sure that every guest i had um and i'll have to make an exception now for pete evans who was a semi-regular mm-hmm. pop-up um every guest that i had i had to be i had to be passionate and engaged about why i was talking to them so yeah. um I look at Pete now and I just shake my head and go, what, what the hell happened, dude? Um, but, you know, it's, it's also given me a, a lovely introduction to um, chefs and people and operators that I didn't know, mm. that I now know and, you know, that I value highly and that I want to support as we emerge from COVID. Yes. Do you think, um, I mean, knowing, knowing the arts industry and the entertainment industry as you do as well, like they've always, like the connection has always been with food, right? And and food and restaurants in 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 is an art form in itself. Do do you think that because of COVID, and because of these challenging times for all those industries, that there will be more collaboration, more infusions between arts and entertainment and the food and wine industry? Because really, they probably need each other more than ever. Um. Absolutely, yes. And I think this kind of goes to one of the, the points that I wanted to get to. Mm. The value of transactions um, in our industry has always been about um, price, 
Yes. And if you know that the, the transaction you're getting at Flower Drum is exceptional and the, the, the Lou family have always done it beautifully, mm. it's a wonderfully choreographed dance to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and you pay, you pay the price for that. You know, there, there is value in, in that piece of theatre, that piece of art as, as, a, as a service. Um, likewise, if you go to one of the, the walk-in restaurants in, in Little Burke Street in Chinatown and have the same experience, it's not going to be the same because mm. it's, the, the price point is lower. Yes. I think we're going to be far more um, appreciative of the value of a transaction being about um, value and engagement and experience rather than price. Yes. And I think we as a dining public and those of us who love the industry as we do, we're not going to really care what we pay for, for food. Yes. Um, you know, we, we don't want to be ripped off. We don't want to be hoodwinked into paying an absurd amount of money. But I think we, we all want the industry to recover quickly. And mm-hmm. so we'll just drop money. Mm-hmm. Good money after bad sometimes. Yes. Um, however, it, th- there's got to be value in that transaction. And that's what I'm, that's one of the key lessons I hope that, that we learn. And part of the value of that transaction is um, how it becomes a, a multifunctional thing. So it's not just um, you and, and your partner going to sit down and, and have dinner and a bottle of wine and a cocktail in a restaurant. It's, it's going to be about those collaborations that you mentioned. It's going to be about um, artists and performers and musicians and, yes. and, and actors and those kinds of people working in what is already theatre mm-hmm. in, in a much bigger way. And I think um, that's how some businesses are going to start to, to separate themselves from the pack. And they're the ones that are going to survive. Yes. Um, I think, I think Rabbi has always been a, a brilliant example for me on how you just make a business work. Yes. Um, apart from hard work and the fact that the man could charm the pants off a rattlesnake. Um, it, it, it's about um, making sure that the value of the transaction, that when you leave, mm. you really feel like you've got something out of it. And I was interested to read some some friends of mine just uh, last night had gone to a, a venue near them. Um, they themselves have a venue. Um, they're quite successful. They'd gone to a venue near them with their friends. They'd spent $300 on the experience. The experience was woeful to the point that they had passive-aggressive text messages from the service person. They had, um, you know, they were kind of, they were contacted by phone later in the night right. and given a mouthful by uh, a waiter. That restaurant won't survive. Right. Um, and that, that this all came from the fact that um, the, the people that were there have some, some animals at home. Right. Um, they, could, they couldn't finish a meal. They knew that, they wanted to take it home for right, I see. the animals. Um, service person got really offended that you know they wanted to take food home for the animals. I think uh, it's kind of absurd that they're just going to chuck it in the bin. Yes, exactly. So if I've got a, if I'm, I'm not a huge eater, um, I used to be, but not anymore. So if I've got a, if I've paid you know seventy five bucks for a, a ribeye steak and I want to take the bone home for the dog. Yes. I'd like to take that home because that's part of my transaction. Yep. Um, nine times out of ten, I won't. But the value of that transaction and of you saying yes mm. um, makes me want to come back. And this is this is where things like loyalty and engagement come from. They're not 
um, pie in the sky ideas. They are real tangible growth and revenue drivers. And I think that's going to come back to a very long circle of the value of marketing and what marketing mm-hmm. is. Marketing is there to grow your revenue. It's there to drive business. Yes. It's not there as a coloring in or arts and crafts department. It's actually about, it, it, it's a key discussion when you're planning on what your revenue looks like and you write a business plan, where are my customers coming from? They're not just going to walk in the door because you're placing that in the local newspaper. Yes. Yeah. So it, it's going to take a real strategy to find your new customers and to understand who they are where they come from, why they spend, how much they spend, how they get to your venue, where are they parking, mm. um, where are they putting their their walking stick or their wheelchair. Yes. All of those things are, are very much part of the discussion around revenue growth. They're not things that we have to think of later. Yes. So I'm I, I, sorry, go on. I was going to say, do you think, you know, with the challenges that uh, that a city like Melbourne has had and obviously Sydney as well with a, with a longer lockdown or just more confusion about where the virus is that venues who can survive during this time and God willing, I hope they all do, but the venues that can survive will, you know, deliver on a potentially better experience than they were before because they're dealing with less guests. They really have to think about how they serve a guest. And then in turn, the marketing that they put behind that will be better executed because their experience with inside the venue will be much better than it ever was before. Like, do you think that's where the positivity might come between the, the, the PR and marketing actually working much better than it might've done pre pandemic when it was, you know, for some, uh, for some organizations, not your own, obviously, but for some, it was just a splatter gun approach of like, let's just put everything out there and see what happens. Correct. Um, yes. You've just summarized it beautifully. Mm. Um, there were a lot of people spending money on um, bad campaigns. Mm-hmm. And whilst there's no, they say there's no such thing as bad publicity, there absolutely is in this, in this yeah. sector. 100%. Um, and those, those venues that have taken time over the last few months to think about what a post-COVID service looks like, yes. given the restrictions on the amount of people we can have in a venue and, and how they're going to be adequately spaced, Mm. Um, how they're going to how we're going to monitor um, how we're going to make sure that that you know we've got enough hand sanitizer and mm. and what what the experience is going to be. Yes. Um, I think those people that have thought about that and that have invested in that during the lockdown mm-hmm. are going to emerge much better and much quicker. Yes. Um, you can't just open the doors and expect people to walk in anymore and for them to have the same experiences that they were having this time last year. Yes. Um, it's already been a year since the, the first case of um, mm. COVID-19 was diagnosed in Wuhan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's frightening to think it's it's been a year already. Yes. Yeah. So I think those people that are considering what their experience is, mm-hmm. those people that are, um, that, are, that are being strategic about their thinking, those that are evaluating the value of the transaction as over you know, its, its price, or, uh, sorry, its value rather than price, Yep. It's experience rather than price. It's those that have said to themselves during this time, what what is my USP? What's my what's my thing that's going to make me different from the business five doors up? Mm-hmm. Um, we're both serving X cuisine. What am I going to do better yep. so that I have the edge on the market? I think those people that have focused on on local customers, mm-hmm. and this comes across regional as well as um, as metro. 
very much so on thinking about where are my customers coming from, who are my locals, and how do I look after them mm-hmm. rather than relying on the city slickers coming into town every weekend. Yes. Because that hasn't been happening. So I think that renewed focus on local customers, even for, for metro venues, has been um, a much-needed boost, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and then, like I said, just just making sure that you you really understand, you can highlight and and talk about what your USP is. I think mm-hmm. that's that's the key to to success. Yeah, because it is it is really key that brands, um, venues think about what their point of difference is, like how they're different amongst other other venues inside their space, isn't it? Because we could we could sort of end up with the same problem we had before, is that there are a lot of what I call me too brands doing the same sort of dishes and the same sort of experience and doing the same sort of fit out. Like it's just so important that they think about how they actually layer their marketing PR and and their food in this time. Don't you think? Oh, I think all of those things are important. And you know, the, you mentioned the fit outs and design and those kinds of things. It's, um, it was almost getting, and I'm not saying this just in Melbourne, but elsewhere getting a little homogenous. We're all looking yes. to the industry leaders to emulate what they were doing, mm-hmm. which is great, but does it fit your focus? Yes. You know, there's a, there's a guy out in, in the Dandenongs um, at a place called The Independent, Mauro Caligari. Mm. Um, he's, what he does is fantastic. Um, there's no, there's not a lot of frippery going on. Um, and he's got flatware that um, has a picture that his father drew of a, of a matador. Yes. Because um, he comes from he's in a, a kind of Spanish Argentinian background. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really important to him. And I look at what the Berencello boys are doing at, um, at Omai and Beaconsfield, mm-hmm. quite a way out of town and not part of the, the, the inner 5K radius. Yes. Um, and, you know, there's, there's uh, Chase and there's, there's, there's just three boys. Mm-hmm. One's a chef, one's front of house, one's a song. And they've built this very authentic, but very, very modern experience. And sadly, um, you know, we emerged from COVID, they're open for a couple of weeks and they had a fire in their venue, which is, is yeah, utterly yeah. heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, but those, those boys will bounce back because what they've got is, is really unique. Yes. Um, you know, Ben Shuri at Attica, been the mm. leader in, in the industry for so long. And I think the USP for Ben, if I was to identify it, is his authenticity. Yes. Yeah. You know, there's not a lot of, I'm going to make six Atticas. No. Um, he's announced recently he's, he's opening a, a, a second version of Attica. Yeah. Yes. But that's been, that's been coming for 15 years. Yes. You know, that's not something he's going to do overnight. So um, there's, there's kind of, there's things that I would suggest that venues can do to keep them ahead of a curve and, and one of them is well i've kind of been talking about trends and things that work stay away from trends don't try and be yeah the next chin chin don't try and be the next um cool thing because you know how many more burger restaurants can we have how many more pizza restaurants can we have that are doing authentic wood-fired hand-stretched italian pizzas that have incredible yes. ingredients yes I think when you're sitting down to write a business plan, mm. that point of difference has to be really evident from the start. If you're just going to do another DOC or, an, or try and emulate 400 Grati or yes. you're going to do another burger bar, then you're not thinking hard enough about what it is you want to do. Mm. And part of that design and fit out and, and conceptualizing your business, um, and I'll go back to Rabiani again when you open this, the burger bar in, in St Kilda, what was a, you know, was a, a drive-through liquor store. Yes. 
Um, and he created something that just went nuts. Mm-hmm. When it was you know a drive-through burger, but hadn't been done, yes. so we thought about what the concept was and how it was going to be different enough. Yes, um, you know Lucy Lou's another brilliant example. When Lucy Lou was built and opened, it was it was pan Asian, it was very funky, it was some something based in in the music that was happening through the place. Yes, I went to Lucy Lou just in, in its post-COVID open in the first week, and whilst it was kind of empty and and, and I don't want to say hollow in a sense. Mm. That that feeling of dining at Lucy Lou was still there. It wasn't crowded, wow. but there was still some really cool thumping base, and the food was um, incredible and as good as, as it's always been. Yes, um, because that's that's what they do. That's what yes. that's that's where they hang their hats. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, long grain for heaven's sake. You know, long grain closed, and I don't. I haven't been since it's reopened under Scott Pickett's tutelage, but you know, take away the fact that you go to Long Grain for a plenty good cocktail yes. and some impeccable Thai food. Mm-hmm. If that if that stays the same, mm. then Long Grain will survive. Mm-hmm. If Long Grain becomes another Estelle or one of Scott's restaurants, mm-hmm. I don't know that will, and I'm not providing advice to Scott. So, um, but that would be my advice: don't try and create something that we've already got. Yes. Just keep the authenticity of long grain because long grain is successful because. Yes. Um, yeah. And I, I'm kind of seeing Melbourne now. Um, everyone's saying Melbourne, just do you. And that's really good advice for venues. So I think Pure South is another incredible um, example down at, at South Bank. Um, Pure South are absolutely devoted to highlighting incredible produce from Tasmania. Yes. And it is the best Tasmanian restaurant in the country. Mm. It's not in Tasmania. <laughs> um, because uh, uh, Philip and Peter spend a lot of time talking to producers mm. who have got really unique stories to tell. Yes. And so when their chef, David, picks up the produce, mm. he's continuing. He's adding another chapter to that story. And I think that's something that those guys just do extraordinarily well. Yes. Um, and they're unashamed in their devotion to Tasmanian produce. Yes. Um, so, you know, venues are going to try and create another Arbery or another Arbery afloat. Venues are going to try and create something that's, um, you know, another, another one of those things that's become an icon very quickly. Um, but they become an icon very quickly because they're offering something that's, that's unique and different. And if we don't have that experience, mm. then kind of wasting your money opening a venue if you're going to just try and be like somebody else. Yeah, I totally agree. Or, and I shouldn't say just opening a venue. If you're creating a product or a brand, mm-hmm. make a barbecue sauce, don't yeah. make a barbecue sauce that I can buy everywhere else. Yes, yeah. Do something that's a bit nuts. Yeah, what is your point of difference? Yeah, for sure. Correct. Um, um, use a, sorry, I just want to use one more example of Lady Gaga. Yes. Um, Lady Gaga is an extraordinary singer. Mm. Um and an incredible singer. And before she became the Gaga that we knew, mm. she was Stephanie Gemini and she was trying to um, break through mm-hmm. a very crowded space. Yes. So the way she chose to do that was to become Gaga, mm. to become um, this, you know, I don't want to say clown, but, you know, the theatrics of what she did yeah. allowed her to garner attention if you listen to what she's doing now 
She's Lady Gaga without the bacon dresser, without all the frippery. Yes. yes. And she's still that incredible voice. So that was how she was able to make herself heard. Yes. And I think from a marketing point of view, that's genius. Yes. It's just pure brilliance, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want um, just two questions before I let you go, if that's right, Pete. Um, sure. I really want you thinking on this because you are from regional Victoria originally. Like, do you, do you, do you think now with obviously the crisis that we have in CBD locations worldwide and restaurants and that kind of stuff, do you think in, in Victoria and around Australia that it will lead to a renaissance period for country Victorian venues sort of coming out and, um, you know, being, being that next wave of amazing venues and not, not so much being CBD? Mm. I don't think it's going to be a period. I think it's going to be a, a, an ongoing change. Mm. And I say that because we've all become really familiar with the fact that we don't have to work in an office. Yes. Uh, we're, we're not going to go back to offices um, yeah. en masse like we used to, which mm. means some of us are going to make the decision to, um, to buy a property in the country. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now that might still be an hour and a half or two hours from Melbourne, but what we're going to do is go out and we're going to have an expectation in a town like Chewton outside mm-hmm. of that we can get a good coffee. Yep. Um, and we're going to expect that when we go to, um, you know, another small regional centre that we're going to be able to buy some really good quality bread, sourdough yep. that's made on spelt flour, mm-hmm. for example. Yep. So I think. Um, what this is actually going to be is a huge boon for regional Australia in the longer term. Yes. Because we, we may also, I don't want to use the word decentralised, but with less focus on us being in Melbourne and more time that we want to spend with our families, mm. a lifestyle that's outside of the heart of the CBD or the burbs is where we don't have to commute. I and mean, look, we might do one or two days of, of commute, but yep. um, we're not going to be doing that to get to an office mm. because the whole dynamic of, of work has changed. So I think for regional Victoria, this is an incredible boon. And I hope that people understand that, um, again, it's going to go back to the value of the transaction that someone's going to get in regional Victoria. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm looking at going out and buying a property in regional Victoria myself because I like the idea of, you know, two or three days in the city, two or three days in the bush. And I yeah. say the bush. It will be a regional, a regional centre, but I think what that's going to allow, we're already seeing um, people move out to, to regional Victoria and open yeah. restaurants. You saw what it was done at Bray mm-hmm. with Dan Hunter and, you know, the success of the Royal Mail and the success of the Lake House in Dalesford and yes. um, what Stefano de Pieri has done in Mildura. Yes. Um, and we're going to see this emerge in, in other major regional centres. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was Igni in Geelong was another one. Um, mm-hmm. So as we find this commute so much easier or in fact we don't have to commute uh i think you know michael nunn's another one michael's gone out to ballarat and opened a a place that's doing incredible charcuterie um so you'll kind of be able to find um those things you like in regional centers that you've only ever been able to get in melbourne so Mm. i think what we can look forward to is seeing more and more chefs kind of pack up the family and and you know, head out to Bendigo or head out to Ballarat or head out to Sale or what have you. And, and we'll start to see a demand yes. for venues. And we'll also start to see those that are enterprising enough to say, okay, I want to have a restaurant. I can't afford to have a restaurant in Collins Street. Mm-hmm. I can't afford to have a restaurant in Victoria. I can't afford to have a restaurant in Richmond. 
but I can afford to have a restaurant in Druin, or I can afford to have a restaurant in Horsham, or yes. I can afford to have a restaurant in, in, in Castle Maine. So I think we'll start to see a, a bit more of a spread in some sense. And I think that's a very positive thing for regional Victoria. Yeah, I agree. Mm. Well, I, I hope it is because I think that's very smart. Yeah. I hope, um, I hope in that, in, I won't say time frame again, but like, you know, the, the longevity of that is I hope that we still keep the essence of why regional centers around Australia are so good and it doesn't lead mm. to, pure gentrification of those of those places you know like oh, but look at uh, that that will happen and we've seen gentrification happen in suburbs in melbourne but hmm. i think gentrification is not um on its own a bad thing because uh, when you're stimulating local economies you're providing employment for people which means that yeah. young people aren't going to feel compelled to leave that local space good point apart from going to university or whatever what have you hmm. um it's going to encourage younger people to stay um because they can get a job in a restaurant. They can start their career as a chef. They don't have to go to mm. Melbourne or Sydney or, or, or Brisbane. Yes. Um, and they can start to learn off chefs that, that they've come to know in some way. So, yeah. um, you know, it's like people who want a career in front of house and there are a great many brilliant front of house, talent, talented brilliant front of house people. Yes. They will get an opportunity in a, in a good venue. And we're kind of seeing it already, Sean, in, in some of the, um, the cellar doors that are opening. Um, mm. Adam Cash, who's who's been a part of the Melbourne scene for a very long time now, at Sutton Grange out near near um, Heathcote. So you know, there's it's kind of happening already, and I think uh, this pandemic may in fact um, push that along a little quicker. Yes, and I think we could ultimately see um, a resurgence of, of, of fine dining across all of Victoria and indeed regional Australia. Yeah. So it's a very, you know, exciting time in some ways mm. out, of, out of the ashes. I think uh, uh, a phoenix will rise and I think it's going to be a really good time. Um, It'll also allow producers to start to produce for local yes. um, for local venues. And I remember, I think it was um, the chef at Key, Peter, um, Peter Gilmore, telling me a story that he wanted some um, heirloom purple carrots. Mm-hmm. He couldn't buy them, so he went to a farmer and he said, I want you to grow these. Mm-hmm. And so the farmer said, yes, I'll create some space and grow those for your restaurant. Yes. And now, of course, every second cafe is serving you purple carrots. <laughs> yes. So I think from a, from a producer's point of view, and then from a producer comes a winemaker's point of view, yeah. um, and a viticulturalist point of view. And when you've got a, an emergence of, of produce in a town, you've got an emergence of um, more people willing to take a risk, then again, the employment function within those communities starts to grow and individual economies start to, to get bigger. And of course, we come to a point where people who are wanting to be in Castle Lane can't afford to buy in Castle Lane because we're, we're seeing a growth. So they'll go out to Metcalf or Tewton or, or one of these other towns and, and we'll start to see this, this emergence of, of kind of boundaryless economies, yes, um, which can only be... Um, a recipe for success in my mind. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, my last question before I let you go, and I really do appreciate your time. This has been uh, a great hour to spend with you, Pete. Is um, what what is the one thing you are most looking forward to in twenty twenty one at this moment? <laughs> um, it's a really interesting question. I'm um, I made a promise to myself when I came home to Melbourne and, and out of my marriage that. Um, I needed to see more people. 
Mm. And, you know, all pre-COVID, everything was very, oh, let's catch up soon, let's catch up soon. And, yes. and we kind of get wound up in life and we don't. So I've made it a real mission um, for myself and, and those around me. I'm starting to, um, I'm, I'm going out to regional Victoria this weekend. Amazing. Um, in a couple of weeks, I'm going out to a different area in regional Victoria. I'm mm. going to start seeing some of those people that I promised that I'll catch up with. Yes. Um, and I think that's what I'm looking forward to in 2021 is, is having the ability to go out to, to all kinds of spaces, not just Victoria, and be a part of the evolution of, of those little economies and yeah. you know, spending my money in small towns and, and being a part of a community, even if it's just for a day, to feel yeah. like that sense of belonging in a, in a small town. And I think it's something that all of us who, who live in, and I live on, right on the edge of the city, Mm-hmm. Um, but those of us with a kind of frenetic city lifestyle almost crave that sense of, of being connected to a, to a bit of dirt um, wherever yeah. it is and whatever's growing in it. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm quite looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to um, just seeing how we evolve and, and how we've pivoted and what's different. And I think there's things like kindness and compassion and, and thoughtfulness that have come from this. And I think we all respect I hope we'll respect one another a little bit more. And if that is what comes out of this as a, as a positive, then that makes me a very happy man. So I'm looking for more, forward to a thoughtful, respectful, um, busy, fun 2021. Yeah, I totally agree. You're here. Um, Pete, thanks so much for your time today. Um, what's, what's, the, um, what's the best way that people can connect with you and um, you know, anything around PR and marketing? I know that you'll be uh, a voice of reason for many. Sure. Just go to scoffer.com.au. Mm-hmm. Um, that will all of my details are on there people will be able to find me so um, it's the easiest way to get me beautiful and I'll make sure they're in the show notes so everyone can connect really quickly Pete Dillon thanks so much for your time thank you Sean good to talk to you mate take care